Heavenly Father, truly out of the depths, we cry out to you as our Lord. We ask for abundant grace and mercy this morning that you would hear our voices. That you would let your ear be attentive to us as we cry out to you for mercy. If you, Father, should mark your children's iniquities, no one could stand. But with you, we know in Christ there is forgiveness, and therefore you are rightly to be feared. We wait for you, Father. Our souls wait for you. And in your word, there truly is hope. Our souls wait for you more than the watchmen for the morning or the watchmen for the morning. Our hope is in you, Father. For with you there is steadfast love. And with you there is plentiful redemption. You will redeem your church, your people, from all iniquities. That you, Father, your Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit might be glorified both now and forever. Father, this is a weighty passage. Too weighty for a sinful man like me to handle. And so I ask for your grace to abound with my mouth and my words. I pray as well that you would have your grace abound with the ears and the hearts of my brothers and sisters and all those you've gathered here this morning to hear this word. I pray we are rightly overwhelmed by the weight and the magnitude of the teaching on this Passover lamb, knowing that it is Christ, your son. I pray, Lord, that it brings a great seriousness to this walk, that we would want to hear, as Kirk read from Peter, that we are to be holy as you are holy because Christ has made us holy. At the same time, Lord, I pray there be inexpressible joy. Joy in knowing that the work is done, that the blood has been spilled, the debt has been paid, and we are free. Lord, we ask that you would bring this truth, this gospel truth from Exodus chapter 12, alive to us today, that we might be a people, even now, transformed more and more into the image of the Lamb. We ask this, Lord for our own blessing, for the blessing of this church, the blessing of this community, but above all else, we ask it for your glory, that you would do this work in sinners like us, that your name might be magnified, magnified here, that this world might know that you are the true, living, good God that you are. We thank you on this Father's Day for being our Father. You are the best Father. We are so eager to worship you forever in Christ's name. Amen. Father's Day is easier than Mother's Day. We always celebrate Father's Day, right? I mean, every Sunday we celebrate Father's Day, so it's easier. I don't have to make any shifts or adjustments. I don't even have to change the sermon because it's all about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, if you do not have your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 12, please do so. I want your eyes to see these words as I work through the text. Uh, every pastor preaching any sermon from any text of the Bible should have a right fear and awe before he takes the pulpit. That said, there are certain passages which are more terrifying than others, and this is one. This is one, as, even last Sunday, as I went home and I started reading through Exodus 12 and looking at what I was going to be working on, I'm like, oh, I can't do this. I, I can't do it. It's too much. It's too big. It's too powerful. And so I, I ask for your forgiveness in advance of my not doing the service that I should to this text. Hopefully, the preaching today will compel you to go back and read and study and meditate and pray on it more. It's certainly worthy of it. In my initial take on Exodus 12, 1 through 13, I saw about seven sermons off the top. You're going to get one, and it probably won't be the best. If you've been with us these past several weeks then you've noticed that Exodus chapter 12 is a bit anticlimactic. It's not the actual Passover. 
It's the instruction on the Passover. And we've been looking at, at plagues 1 through 9 at breakneck speed where God has been displaying His majesty and His power to Egypt and to Israel. And we've been talking about blood and frogs and, and flies and boils and locusts and darkness. And there's been a lot of excitement and a lot of movement. And now we're brought back into the classroom. And we're told to sit and be still and listen very closely. And that's what God has done for His people in Exodus 12 and what He will do for us this morning if we have ears to hear. He has instructions to give. These are no ordinary instructions. He wants us to hear this because this tenth and final plague of Yahweh is not only going to fulfill two of the three promises that He made back in Exodus chapter 6. You remember those, don't you? In Exodus chapter 6, God said to His people, I'm going to free you from the bondage of Pharaoh. I'm going to redeem you and make you my people. I will be your God and you'll be my people. And number three, He said, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. The tenth and final plague accomplishes promises one and two. He's going to free them from bondage, and he's going to redeem them as a people. And so it was important that they understood what this plague meant. It was important not only for the glory of God, but for their own lives. They had to hear these instructions that they too might live. And it was also important because the Passover, the Passover becomes the predominant Old Testament sign of salvation by grace through faith in the blood of the Lamb. It's established here in Exodus chapter 12, and it works its way throughout the entire Old Testament through the prophets, through the teaching of the temple and the tabernacle and the sacrificial system set up by the Levites. And as we move through the culmination to Christ himself, and so it is a a sign that cannot be missed by us because we know that Christ as we had a chance to just sing, is that Passover lamb. This celebration in Exodus chapter 12, this instruction was pointing everyone to Christ and the cross so that today you might see that you have hope for freedom and redemption in the blood of the lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the son of God. And his body was broken and his blood was spilled so that you might have the freedom and redemption that God promises to His people. So significant was this event in the history of God's people, He has them change their entire calendar to commemorate it. Look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, verse 2, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now, we know from Exodus chapter 23 that the month was in line with the harvest. or Their calendar was in line with their harvest. So the year ended usually September, October, the harvest, and it would start at that time as well. And God says, I'm going to re-alter this whole thing. You're going to now have in the month of Nisan, the end of March, beginning of April, will be the first month of the first year of your calendar. From then on, their New Year's commemoration would remind them that they are a people that was moved by the mighty, powerful, and gracious hand of God that made them free and redeemed them out of Egypt. Every single year would come around, our January 1, their April 2, April 3, April 10, would be that time to remember this single event. That's how important it was, and that's how important it is to us today. For nine plagues... God demonstrates his power and decreates the nation of Egypt. And here in the 10th plague, he will recreate Israel. He will make a people for his own namesake, his own people. So I want us to look at this passage with the understanding of freedom and redemption that we so desperately long for, that we too have that same promise and that same hope in our Passover lamb by the name of Jesus Christ. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray we can praise Jesus by living the lives that the power of the blood gives us to live. There is power in the blood of Christ. If you do not know that, I pray that by the end of this sermon, you will. I want to do that by looking at three things. The perfect sacrifice, the perfect meal, and the perfect covering. The perfect sacrifice, the perfect meal, and the perfect covering. 
Point number one, the perfect sacrifice. At the very heart of the Passover meal was a communal act of faith in a perfect sacrifice. Look at verse 3. Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. These are the instructions from God to Moses to give to the people. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Now, I want you to notice first that it's the entire nation is going to eat as households collectively. This is not an individual endeavor. This was not Yahweh and a person. It was Yahweh and a community of people. And he tells them here, if you, if you have a lamb and you sacrifice that lamb and it's too much food for you, then grab your neighbors, the nearest ones, and have them come or you go to them and you sacrifice and you eat that lamb together. And so we see from the very beginning that God intends for this salvation by grace through faith in the blood of the Lamb to be communal in nature. In fact, at the end of chapter 6, even the killing was to be done simultaneously as a nation. Look at the end of verse 6. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And so the defining moment for the Old Testament and the pinnacle of the Passover on the cross in the New Testament is established and steeped in community, a collective oneness in families and God's people. That means from the inception of our faith, going back to the teaching of the sacred Passover, community, listen, sharing our lives together, experiencing the sacrifice of the lamb together, growing in the sanctification of the lamb together, has always been part of God's plan. It's never been like we do it here in the United States. My religion, my faith, my God, I walk it alone. Never intended in Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament. And I would argue here, my beloved, that we so desperately need a paradigm shift in this area. We, Cambrian Park Baptist Church, in this area. The radical individualism and the personal autonomy that has swallowed the culture has made its way into the church, and it's swallowing the church... And if we're not careful, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss it. We know this. Most of you know this. If you've been here any time, you've been hearing me preach on it now for about 17 years. Um, I'm not going to say any more on it because you know the right way to live. I, I think this might be very much like Jesus coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration and casting out the demon from the boy. And the disciple says, why can we do it? He says, this requires fasting and prayer. I think we need to pray more on this. I really do. Look at verse 5. Your lamb, the lamb that you will select, shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Picking the right sacrifice for the Israelites was the difference between life and death. Picking the right sacrifice, my beloved, for you, is the difference between life and death. For the Israelites, it had to be a male. Lots of reasons and speculation on that. I think it's because God was gracious. The females produced more goats and more lambs. And so God said, let's take a male so it won't be too detrimental to you. One year old, fully mature yet not aged. 53-year-olds would not be good sacrificial lambs. One year old. Most importantly, he said, without blemish. No spot, no disease, no deformity, not lame, not sickly, the best lamb you can find. Why this spotless lamb? Why the perfect lamb? You remember, the lamb was going to take the place of the firstborn in the house of the Israelites that deserved to die, and therefore it would be a sacrifice to God. And God requires a perfect sacrifice because He is a perfect, holy God. I like how Eugene Peterson Put it, speaking of Jesus himself, he said, it was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person, that is Christ, that made perfect some very imperfect people like us. That rings true to my heart. Do you remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming out to the Jordan to be baptized? Do you remember what John said? John looks upon Christ and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world 
And then he said, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, if you remember from Luke chapter 7, Jesus said this of John the Baptist. Jesus said of John, his cousin, I tell you, among those born of a woman, there is no one greater than John. You know, that John says, I can't even untie the strap of his sandal. Why? This is the Lamb of God. This is the perfect, sinless, spotless, morally holy Lamb of God. John was right. He was not worthy to even touch his sandal, let alone untie it. Jesus Christ is the perfect lamb and therefore the perfect sacrifice because a perfect sacrifice is required for a holy God. Now, I want you to listen so closely right now. We all pick sacrifices. Each and every one of you has has picked a sacrifice, maybe multiple sacrifices that you think is pleasing to God. And you believe that if I make this sacrifice, if I do this particular work, God will be pleased with me. He'll receive the sacrifice and he'll allow me to come into his presence. He'll save me from the day of judgment. Some of us have foolishly thought that if we give our lives to our children, being the best father and the best mother that we can be, God will be pleased with that sacrifice and receive us. Others have thought that if we can be that best employee or that best student, get that next degree, Maybe it's be the best church member or give the most money to the poor. Maybe you're going to be that saint who prays the longest and studies the longest, makes the most disciples. Now, I want you to listen closely. In all that great work by the Holy Spirit, God can be honored. But none of it is sufficient as a sacrifice to a holy God. Anything that you do in the flesh or in the spirit that you think is sufficient to bring before a holy God to redeem you, to free you, and bring you into his presence is a lie. Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb. He is the only sacrifice sufficient to set us free from our sins and redeem us into communion with the living God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, what did he say? Listen closely. Sacrifices and offerings you, the Father, have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And then he says, I have come to do your will. What is that will? Be the sacrifice for man. Paul said in Romans 3.25, God, not man, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. You have no sacrifice to offer. God must bring it. God must sacrifice it. And he must take that blood and apply it to our lives. And that's why the psalmist is right. Who can stand in the presence of God? He who has a clean hand and a pure heart. Those who do not trust in false gods. That's only Christ. No other man, woman, or child ever born fits that description other than Jesus. All your sacrifices, even your best ones, your best deeds, Paul was right, filthy rags covered in blood, covered in excrement. The perfect sacrifice made to God came from God and was God. The perfect sacrifice that you need came from God, made by God, and is God himself. Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God, the only acceptable sacrifice because he's the only perfect lamb. And he had to be. If Christ had sinned a single time in word, thought, or deed, he would have been blemished. His sacrifice insufficient to save himself, let alone anybody else. But the Bible says over and over again, he was spotless. He is spotless. And therefore, he was able to offer his life instead of yours. That is the good news, my beloved. His life instead of yours. But I want us to see in our second point that it was more than just sacrificing the lamb. That is sufficient to save all who repent and believe, but repentance and faith is necessary. You actually have to participate in this sacrifice. Point number two, I pray you're still with me. Don't don't give me tired eyes. Don't give me tired eyes. It's discouraging to me. Look at verse 7. Your participation in freedom and redemption. Verse 7. God, again, speaking to Moses, who's instructing the people, then they shall take some of the blood, this is from the sacrificed lamb or goat, and put it 
on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Verse 9, do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. Verse 10, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. Verse 7, we're going to get back to when we get to verse 12 and 13, speaking of the blood specific. But I want you to see here that they had to eat the flesh of the lamb, and they had to do it in a particular manner, which you might think a bit odd. If the Passover meal was a signpost pointing to Christ, that the people would put their faith in Christ, then this is a test of the faith of those in Israel at the time. Were they going to trust in God and his sacrifice, or were they going to just engage in a religious movement? First, they were told to consume the entire sacrifice, and if anything remained, it had to be burned in the morning. They were not allowed to boil it or eat it raw. Fire was the only way to cook it. Fire was the only way to destroy it, because at that time, fire was the means of sacrifice. This was not just an ordinary meal. This was the Lord's Passover And so he wanted to make this meal distinct from all other meals. The sacrifice was to be consumed, taken all the way in. On the cross, you know that Jesus Christ became that perfect sacrifice in our place. And he did it by being completely consumed himself. On the cross, he gave up everything on our behalf. He gave up his body. He gave up his blood, his reputation, his people. He even gave up his own Father, so that in so doing, in the completion of that perfect sacrifice upon the cross, when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it is finished. You need no other sacrifice other than Jesus Christ for the freedom and redemption that God offers to all who repent and believe. No other sacrifice is needed. Jesus is sufficient to save his people, those who what? Those who eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. Early in his ministry, probably earlier than most would think he would reveal this, while Jesus was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, he said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one who may eat of it and not die. And then he said this, listen, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is what? Is my flesh. The Israelites were commanded to eat the flesh of the Passover lamb, to take it all the way into themselves. In other words, this sacrifice had to be personal. It had to be intimate. It had to be on the inside and not just an external act of religion. And Jesus says we must listen. We must do the same. Coming to a saving grace in Jesus Christ, saying that you are a Christian, a disciple of Jesus Christ, means that Christ has come all the way into your life. He's in your heart. He's in your mind. He's in your soul. He is your functional Savior. He truly is your Lamb of God who takes away your sins and grants you freedom and redemption. It means that Christ The sacrificial lamb above all else is how you live each and every day. Your power, your strength, your primary motivation and meditation. Not your education, not your work, not your marriage, but the person, listen, not the religion, the person, Jesus Christ. You've taken him in. You've consumed him. And he now is Lord. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, and we're going to get a chance to do that today, and I pray that you're more excited today than you've ever been. We're replicating the first Passover meal. We're taking in the flesh, and we're drinking the blood, and we're saying to God, to the church, and to the world, I'm not religious. I don't want to engage in religious exercises for the sake of external satisfaction or approval. When you take the Lord's Supper, you're saying, I'm taking Christ in because He is my life. That He defines you, and He moves you, that He encourages you, and He rebukes you, 
He brings you to his word and he raises you up in the faith and he sends you out into the world that you might tell others of this glorious Lamb of God. Did you notice how they were eating this? Look at verse 11. They were to eat it in faith. They were to consume it, take it all the way in, and they were to eat it in faith. Look at verse 11. Moses said, In this manner you shall eat it, eat the lamb, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. Now, from a cultural standpoint, you say, well, so what? They had their shoes on, they had their belt on. When I eat, I eat with my shoes and my belt on. I don't have a staff, but if I did, I might hold that too. Everything about this meal is dressed in urgency. Everything about it is urgent. They're commanded to roast the lamb, not only because that's the way that sacrifices were exercised then, but roasting was much faster. No pots, no utensils, no boiling of water, no time. Make a fire, roast the lamb. If you've gone camping, you know what I'm talking about. The bitter herbs could be easily taken, washed, and then eaten as a side along with the meal. No preparation necessary. No yeast in the bread. We'll talk more about that next week. But very simply, no yeast. You don't have to wait for it to rise. You mix it, you cook it, you eat it. Even the way they roasted, look at verse 9, head with legs and its inner parts. No butchering, no dividing of the parts and distributing them for the multiple uses that the people did. And then they were to eat the meal with their belts fastened, their sandals on their feet, the staff in hand, and eating it in haste. It was not to be a leisurely meal. A standard meal, you take off your belt, you take off your shoes, you put down your staff, you'd recline, and you'd eat leisurely. No concept of fast food back then, you know that. Preparation, time, um, uh, finesse in the meal, both in the cooking and in the enjoying of it. But not this one. It was to be cooked fast and eaten hastily, and they were to be attired, ready to go, not to eat, but to go on a journey. Sandal, belt, staff. This was God's preparation of moving them out. 430 years they waited. And this night, this Passover night, God was going to fulfill the promise to free them and redeem them. The entire meal was an exercise of faith in God's promise. You realize that. But there's great Revelation, the details. But don't miss the urgency of the faith they had that God was actually going to do what God had promised he was going to do for centuries. A saving faith that God was going to free them and redeem them is displayed in how they exercise this meal. A true belief that he was not only going to free them and redeem them, but bring them into that promised land. And my beloved, it's the exact same for us you don't have to know much biblical theology to see the connections here. They're extraordinary. Christianity has always, and I'm so thankful, been more than just the compilation of our religious observances. And we do do some. We exercise baptism. We exercise the Lord's Supper. We believe in covenant membership. We believe in corporate prayer. We believe in studying our Bibles. But Christianity has always been founded in a personal saving relationship with the living God. And from that position, we then engage in these great ordinances and means of grace. They believed, as we must, that God will free us through the sacrifice and the blood of the Lamb. They believed, as we must, that God would redeem them as a people, that we will be his people and he will be our God through the spilling of the blood of the Lamb. And if you know Christ, then you have placed your hope in his coming again in glory and bringing you into that promised land. All the promises made to Egypt, made to you as well, but in an eternal eschatological sense. Real freedom, real redemption, real promised land found in Christ. In that land where you will dwell with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and ever. The saving faith is evidenced in how we live now. 
Belts and sandals on, staff in hand, ready every day to do what? To follow the instructions of our Lord. Is that your Monday morning, Wednesday afternoon, Friday night? Belt on, sandals on, staff in hand, ready to follow the instructions of the Lord. If you claim Christ, that should be your position each and every day. That means, men, are you prepared each and every day to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? It's a yes or no. Wives, are you ready, belt on, sandals on, to love and serve and be the helpmate to your husbands that God has equipped and called you to be? Children, children, listen. Do you have your sandals on and your belts on? that you might be the obedient children honoring your mother and father as the Bible has commanded you? Are you an employee that reflects Christ? Are you a friend that reflects Christ? Are you a member of the body of Christ, loving one another, obeying the commands of God, belt on, sandals on, ready to serve, eager to serve, eager to love, not sitting at home watching TV? Not another Friday night alone, but engaged in the lives of those you've covenanted with. Being prepared, my beloved, having your your belt on, sandals on, staff in hand, is every day stepping into the arena of faith and speaking and thinking and relating in a manner that is most pleasing to God. And as I contemplated this passage this week, I was so convicted, I thought, Is my primary motivation in all that I do, is my first thought, Lord, does this please you? Does this make you happy? Is this the movement you want me to do now, this day, this afternoon, or tonight? Am I ready and eager, and am I serving you first and foremost? Am I presenting my body as a living sacrifice, Romans chapter 12, holy and acceptable to God? Am I not conforming to this world but being transformed by the renewal of my mind each and every day? Am I, are you, eager every day to urgently fulfill the work that God has given each and every one of us to do? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. You have work to do. God has ordained it before the foundations of the world. You. Don't think of anybody else. You. That work requires your belt to be on, your sandals to be on, your staff in hand, ready to work, serving. God never intended Christianity to be a spectator's faith. Come on a Sunday, listen for a few hours, and then do your life as you see fit. Every hour of every day belongs to God. So we've seen, one, the perfect sacrifice. That is Jesus Christ. There is no other. Number two, the perfect meal. That is the personal faith in Jesus Christ. You taking it in and being transformed by it. You can't change apart from a transformative faith in Christ. Last point, I pray you're still with me, the perfect covering. Look at the latter part of verse 6 with me. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So the entire nation is engaged in this sacrificial act, the spilling of lots and lots of blood. Verse 7, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. After each house killed their sacrificial lamb, their one-year-old unblemished sacrificial lamb or sacrificial goat, they took the blood and they would smear it or they sprinkled it upon the doorpost on either side of the doorway and on the lintel, which was the header, that's what we would call it today, on the top of the doorway. So the entire entrance all the way around was covered with the blood of the sacrificial lamb. It's beautifully symbolic, isn't it? Cover the doorway, cover the entrance with the blood of the lamb, and then you get inside that house, and inside that house there's safety. You're secure. But you come out. You don't put the blood on the doorway. And you are in danger of death. Why engage in such a strange behavior? Oh, my goodness, the commentators went on and on and on. I figured, you know what? Nobody has any idea. There's lots of, lots of speculation. God can 
institute new ordinances. You know that. He's God. He can say, I'm going to do this independent of the, the pagan religions at the time. We know why. Look at verses 12 and 13. I want you to back up a little bit in verse 11, the very end of verse 11. It is the Lord's Passover. Yahweh claims it. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you. Oh, so important. On the houses where you are, and I will see the blood, and I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Hours after, they kill, they put the blood on the doorway, they eat, ready to go. God says, I'm, I'm going to come. I'm going to make my way through the land of Egypt. And every firstborn man, woman, child, beast will die. The tenth and the final plague. After all these weeks, it was the decisive blow. It would be the blow that would compel Pharaoh finally to let the Israelites go free. We've been waiting for that for nine plagues now. This would be the one. But even more so than that, God says this is the judgment upon their false gods. This is the judgment upon their idolatry. And they're refusing to come to me. This will be the judgment, a final execution upon Ra and Osiris and Nu and Happy and Hecate and all the false gods we looked at. With each plague, God made himself known more and more. And with this final plague, this death blow, this literal death blow, God would exercise his judgment to make himself known, verse 12, by striking all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Bump your eyes back up to chapter 11. Look at verse 4. We described well there. Verse 4, thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. It was in the death of the firstborn, God would demonstrate his superiority, listen, over all the false gods of Egypt. You say, well, why is that significant here? Egypt was the most powerful nation on earth. Back then, the culture saw the power of a nation based upon the power of their gods. So Yahweh comes along, and he decimates all the gods of Egypt, the most powerful nation, saying, listen, I am the God above all other gods, all nations. He's claiming absolute sovereignty over all creation, man, woman, child, beast, nation, language, tongue. And he was doing it, whether you see this or not, I pray you might to evangelize. You know that God's engaging the 10th plague is an evangelistic plague. You say, well, he's killing people. Not all of them, thank you. Listen, he exposes their false gods, inability to do what? To save them from the crisis that every man faces, and that is judgment and death. And by exposing them, he's saying what? Listen, turn from them and turn to me. And that is the heart of evangelism, isn't it? I mean, aren't we supposed to go and tell the world, listen, here's the bad news. The bad news, your false gods, your money, your career, your family, your car, your house cannot save you. And we must tell them that. If you continue to follow those false gods, you will be judged and you will die. But here's the good news. Yahweh saves. Yahweh grants freedom and redemption through the blood of the Lamb. And we can tell them that. We can tell them that upon all the gods of Egypt and upon all the gods of all mankind for all human history, God will judge. And then he says what? I am the Lord because he is. What should amaze us most about this particular plague, if you've been following along, is that Israel, his firstborn, was included in the judgment. Many of the commentators argue, and I think they might be right, that 
in the first nine plagues, Israel was spared. We know they were certainly spared with the darkness. They were spared with the locusts. They were spared with the, the plague on the cattle. But not this one. God was going to come and judge by killing the firstborn in all of Egypt, including Goshen. God is making clear that Israel, his firstborn son, had not been faithful to him. They too had sinned. They too had committed idolatry. They too were deserving of death. And he establishes the template for all mankind, the universal understanding that every man, woman, and child is not exempt from the wrath of God because all have what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that means that even Israel, whom God called my chosen people, my firstborn son, my treasured possession, even Israel needed a sacrifice, a substitute. Even Israel had to have a way out, and that way out was through the blood of the Lamb. God saved them based upon their faith in the sacrifice of the blood, the substitute that would come. Look at verse 13 again. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood shall be a sign for the people. (laughs) He's an omniscient God. He knows those who put their faith in him. He didn't have to see this. Okay, that, that house safe. He didn't have to see it. He knew it. The sign was for the people. It was a sign revealing what? That they believed. It was a sign of faith, my beloved. It was a sign that they believed that God would save them by their faith in the sacrifice of the lamb. And the blood testified to that. It was a sign that they believed that they too deserved to die, that they too deserved the wrath of God, their household, the Israelite household, they believed that. It was a sign that they were in their faith, they were going to put it in God to redeem them, not because of anything they did, but through this sacrificial substitute. They believed that by killing that lamb and smearing the blood on that door, that going inside that home, they would be safe. And God fulfilled that promise, magnifying their faith. The Passover celebrated in Egypt, of course, points to the Passover celebrated upon the cross of Christ when the perfect lamb of God was crucified 1,500 years later. It is the consummate sign of the Christian faith. God the Father sending His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to be just as John had said, the Lamb of God who what? Who takes away the sins of the world. That is the great crisis, my beloved. Your sins render you a judgment of death and separation from God for all eternity. And so Christ came to be that Lamb who takes them away. Take away your sin and you no longer have a problem with God. Take away your sin and you're no longer bound to judgment and death. Take away your sin and you actually have access to enter into the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and ever. By dying on the cross in sinful man's place, Jesus satisfied God's wrath. He satisfied it. He satisfied God's holy justice for all who would simply do what the Israelites did and put their faith in his blood. Just as those in Egypt put their faith in God saving them because they posted their blood on the doorway and the lentil, God offers life instead of death, peace instead of judgment to all who put their faith in the blood that was smeared upon that cross. And he ensures that all those who deserve death because of their sin, all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ and the blood that was spilled by the Lamb of God will receive the righteousness of Christ instead. We're told a little bit later, we'll get to this in verse 30, that death came to every house, including every house in Israel. Did you realize that? Death came to every house. The only difference and the only question was, well, who died? In the Egyptian homes, it was the firstborn 
that died. In the Israeli homes, it was the sacrificial lamb that died as a substitute instead of the firstborn. But in every home, there was death. Now here's where it becomes, I think, really hard for us. That is true for you. In every home, and we can say in every life, death will come. Either you will die in your sin, in your rebellion, and in your idolatry, putting your, your, false, your hope in false gods, and that will be your end, or by grace, through faith in the blood of the Lamb, you will be set free, redeemed as a son or daughter of God, and brought into the promised land when Christ comes again in glory. That is a binary statement. It's one or the other. And faith is a determining factor. Our Lord had His body broken so that we might eat it. He had His blood spilled so that we might drink it. Not only to spare us the judgment to come, but to receive His righteousness and enjoy His Father. You see, Christ knew that the best glory, the best joy was the Father. And He wanted us to participate in that. But we had to take it in. We have to receive it by faith. It is a free gift. You can do nothing. But you must take the gift. There is no work. There is no sacrifice. There is no religious practice that you can do to be satisfied before a holy God. But you must believe. Just like Noah, the Israelites were not exempt apart from their obedience. Had Noah not built the ark, he and his family would have died in the flood. Had the Israelites not slaughtered the lamb per the Lord's instructions and then smeared the door with the blood, they would have died in the plague. The storyline has not changed. The flood is upon us. The plague of death is here. And God sent Christ to be our shelter. Our shelter from the ultimate plague, which is the destruction of your soul in an eternity of hell. But you must receive the free gift. Life through faith in the perfect blood of Jesus. When I got to this point, I said, well, how, how do we know that we're covered? Right? I mean, all these doctrinal truths are, are fantastic and true, but how do you know that you have a saving faith? The worst thing that could happen to you is that you die and you are released from this body of death and you come to the presence of God and He says, I don't know you. You say, wait a minute, I thought I was on the inside. He says, no, you've always been on the outside. How do you know you participated in the Passover of Jesus Christ? So that when God sees you, he sees the blood of Christ and he passes over you. Instead of judgment, he gives you life. And how can that be affirmed by someone besides ourselves? Because I'm not a good judge of my own salvation. Like the communal sacrifice in Egypt, families and nations simultaneously engaging in the killing of their sacrificial lamb, the essentials of our faith would be communally seen and communally affirmed in that you'd have other believers in a local church saying, that one knows Christ. That's counterintuitive to our individual westernized Christianity, I know. But that's what the Bible teaches. Submitting to the Bible's teaching on baptism, the Lord's Supper, covenant membership, communal relationships, Praying together, learning together, eating together, discipling together, loving one another. These would be, listen, these are baselines. These would be basic minimums. If you said, you know what, that's really not a part of my life. You may not be in the house with the blood on the door. If you take any of those things lightly, being baptized, taking communion, being in covenant membership, loving and communing one another with one another, you may be outside the house. You may be deceived. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 7, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't I go to church? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I take the Lord's Supper and get baptized? 
And did I not do many works in your name? Did I not engage in ministry, Lord, and evangelize the lost? And then Christ will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So I'm going I'm to ask you two more questions. If you said, yeah, all that first part, I'm there. I'm going to ask you two more that I think will be helpful, and then we'll close. First question, do you still hope in false gods? Do you still hope in false gods? Not have you made a profession in the name of Jesus Christ. Where is your heart when it comes to Christ? Like the Egyptians, God punished them because they had yet to turn. Have you really put all your faith, all your hope, as the cultures, all your marbles in the blood of the Lamb? I mean, that's it. At the end of the day, in your last breath, will you say, my trust is in the Lamb of God, period, nothing else? And does your life match that? Again, words are not impressive to God. He knows our hearts. When Moses gave these instructions to the, Egypt, to the Israelites, you know that the nation of Egypt was in shambles. I mean, they were, they were utterly and literally decreated. The Israelites could have said, the death is coming, the plague of death is coming, and they could have packed up their households and they could have left. Goshen, actually, on the northeastern part of Egypt was not that far. They could have gotten on a river, headed upstream, away they go. They could have fled. They could have sought refuge in, a, in another god, another nation, another land. But instead, what did they do? They stayed, knowing death was coming. And they put all their faith in the blood of Christ. All their faith in the blood of the Lamb. Do you find yourself still fleeing to those idols that have no power to save you? You know this when things aren't going well. Our faith is best, tasted, best tested when things are hard. Do you still run to those idols? Do you run to that addiction or that safe place or that entertainment? Or maybe that person, maybe there's a person in your life that's a Messiah that's not Christ. You're always turning to. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9.12 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, period. That means no false god or idol in your life, no matter how good that false god or idol is to you, has any power to save you. They have no redeeming blood. Only God through the shedding of the blood of His Son. That's why God the Father sent Christ. Romans 3.25, again, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. That's it, my beloved. Do you trust in God first and above all else to deliver your soul from judgment? And is that revealed in your daily life? Ask yourself that question. Second one for you. Do you live as though you belong to God or to yourself? A saving faith that has brought you under the covering of Christ will be manifest in holiness. If you've truly sacrificed the lamb, you put the, the blood on the door, and you've gone into the sanctuary of Jesus Christ, your life with each passing year, if God gives you that, will become more and more holy. You will be transformed, we call it sanctification, into the image of Jesus. 1 Peter 1 again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Then he says, knowing that you are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. My friends, if you have made a profession in Christ and you got baptized and you became a member of a church and you've spent 10 years and you are no different, there's a high probability you've never been covered by the blood of the lamb. If you are unchanged, no sanctification, no holiness, no growth, you may be a 1 Corinthians chapter 3, maybe, maybe not. Remaining unchanged in your walk with the Lord, continuing in the old way of life, the passions of your former ignorance, not submitting to the simple teachings of the Bible, right? Moses came to the Israelites and said, this is what you must do, and they did it. 
by faith. They did it. Most of you who have you've been in the church long enough, you have lots of instruction, lots of imperatives, lots of things you know you're supposed to do. If you don't do them willfully, intentionally, you may be in danger. You may be outside the house. The Israelites received it and did exactly as the Lord had said, and they were saved. They lived. Pursuing holiness by obeying God's word is more than a religious practice, and it's more than the power of your will. It is a revelation in your heart and mind that you truly do know that it was the blood of Christ that saved you. It was that precious, and therefore your whole life you want to give to him and live for him. It reveals, my beloved, holiness in your life, growing in holiness, reveals that you understand the price that was paid, that it was the blood of the precious, perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And then without that blood, you deserved and will die. But in that blood, you will be saved and made holy as He is holy. There's power in the blood. If you've never placed your faith in the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, then I will call you today to repent and believe and be saved. Turn from your sins. Put your simple faith in God to save you through His Son, the sacrifice that was made on the cross, that you might live, that you might come into the house not only to be freed from the bondage of sin and to be redeemed as a son or daughter of God, but to have that great promise that one day you too will be brought all the way in into the eternal promised land when Christ comes again in glory. If you say, yes, Christ is my my lamb, and I believe he was sacrificed, and I believe that his blood is sufficient, then I want you, my friends, and that's most of you in this church right now as I look at your faces, I want you to exercise the power of the blood and walk in holiness. Walk in holiness. Complacency is not an attribute of the Christian. Remember the precious blood that Christ spilled to make you free and to redeem you. And you will walk in holiness. If each day your primary meditation is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is a crucified, risen Savior. If it is Christ, you will want to be holy. And when you sin, you will confess it and you'll turn from it and you'll pursue it more and more. And so with each passing year, my beloved, your brothers and sisters in Christ, the people here in Cambrian Park, your neighbors and family will say, whatever's happening in that person is something else. Transformation of heart and mind by the power of the blood of Christ. That is the Christian walk by the power of his blood. Walk in holiness and then wait for the third promise. Right? In the blood of Christ, you've already been set free from the power of sin and death. In the blood of Christ, you've already been redeemed. You are, present tense right now, a son or daughter of God if you're in Christ. There's one yet to come. That is the third promise of Exodus chapter 6, is that in Christ, you will be delivered once and forever into the presence of the thrice holy God and know Him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, and they sang a new song. This will be your song when we all gather together. We might as well learn it now. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, speaking of Christ, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And then he said, and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. How glorious if Cambrian Park Baptist Church would reign like that now. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want the the weight of this sacrifice to come down on us with all the power and all the glory of your Lamb who was sacrificed in our place. I ask, Father, that you would soften our hearts as we contemplate his broken body and his spilled blood. That it was necessary for him to die if even one soul 
sinners to be saved. It was necessary for the son, your son, to give his life to redeem sinners like us. We are so thankful, Lord, that on that cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb, did what only he could do and only he would do. That he ascended that cross and he smeared his blood upon those wooden beams so that we sinners might be saved by grace. Father, give us faith. Give us great faith. Put sandals on our feet and belts around our waist and put a staff in our hand and make us urgent about this calling to be holy as you are holy. There's so much work to do, Father, in the church, outside the church. So many people have yet to hear the gospel of grace. So many disciples yet to be made, Lord. Set our feet upon that path. Make us serious with the time that we have. We ask that you would do this, Father, that you would bless many here in the Cambrian Park community with this community of believers at Cambrian Park Baptist Church, that you would use this little church to magnify your name in ways yet unseen here. I pray, Lord, that as we receive this communion this day, that we would recognize that the Passover lamb has done all the work and it is truly finished. And we can take it and rejoice in that. In his name, amen.